Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and uh, to see what you've called us to. And thank you for this day that we get to celebrate all these mothers, Lord, that you've blessed us with and put in our lives. I pray that we're able to honor them as you call us to, and we're able to love them as they've loved us, and that we can reflect the love that you have for us as well. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so how many of you know where this quote is from? Your mission, should you choose to accept it? Mission, okay, mission impossible, right? So, those movies, there's six of them now, and they've, they've grossed three and a half billion dollars in the box office. So that's, that's a lot of money. For those of you that aren't familiar with the movies, Tom Cruise, he gets a mysterious recording, and it starts with, your mission should you choose to accept it. So the famous part of that recording is, this message will self-destruct in five seconds. I didn't want to start my sermon with the phrase, this message will self-destruct in five seconds. So I went with that one. But I mean, it's, you know, three and a half billion dollars. That's a lot of money. And I think the success of those movies is because there's something about being on a mission that appeals to us, that appeals to the human experience, that it, it kind of gives us a sense of like meaning and direction to, to do something. And so I wonder if you've ever felt like you don't have that, that you don't have sort of like a meaning direction, that you're uh, wandering around aimlessly, that you don't really have a mission. It'd be kind of nice to have that recording, I think. And so one definition for mission that I found was a compass guiding one's decisions to achieve their core purpose and reason they exist. So you might be seeing that, and it's just way too intense talk of a compass and a core purpose. Uh, you don't know how to define any of those things, let alone what your core purpose might be. But I just want to posit to you that that everything you do, even if you can't put into words what, what your mission is or what your purpose and meaning in life is, that everything that, that you do, it flows from something, right? And it flows from what you think your, your purpose is, what you think that your mission is, what you're supposed to do. That's, that's why you do what you do. If you want to be a good parent, today's Mother's Day, then the things you do are probably going to be in service to your children, right? So thinking that that's your mission and your purpose in life, you're going to do something about it, and those are the things that you're going to do. And when it comes to the concept of mission, I got inspired by a gentleman named Jocko Willink, if any of you know who that is. He's a former Navy SEAL, and he has a podcast. He's written some books about discipline and leadership, and I think if anybody is familiar with a mission, it's probably a Navy SEAL. That'd be, that'd be my guess. So in one of his videos, he states the following. Jocko says, I need a mission. We all need a mission. That's what life should be, is a mission. 
That's what gives your life purpose and focus and drive and ultimately satisfaction. He says it in a much deeper, resounding voice than I do, but it's all the same message, that we all have a mission, and it gives our life purpose and focus. And so it's good to be able to identify what that mission is, right? So what's your mission? Because I don't even know sometimes if I can articulate or put into words what mine is or what mine's supposed to be. I'm assuming it's probably the same for you. And when it comes to having a mission, it has to be given to you. Go back to the Navy SEALs. So they're given a mission from a higher authority, right? You see where I'm going there. So from a higher authority, they're given a mission, command staff. They tell them what to do, and they send them on a mission. And so you have to ask yourself, what's my mission? And where did it come from? Well, we all have a mission in life. Everybody does. And where it came from is God. And our mission, quite simply as it sounds, is to fully know God and to live for him. And I just quoted from the movie Mission Impossible. And that seems impossible to be able to do that. And that's the thing, is that we've all failed at that mission. None of us have fully lived for and fully loved God. We've all failed. So when you've failed a mission, it's over. You don't, you don't get a second chance. It's, it's aborted. It's abandoned. It's done. But Jesus. He came here and he lived our life's mission perfectly. He fully knew God, and he fully loved God, and so mission accomplished, okay? And he offers us his success, and he offers to take our failure. When he does that, God looks at the status of your mission, not as a failure, but as a success, So the mission is completed, and this is good news. And if you're not a Christian, the bad news is that without Jesus' success, your mission status is still that you failed, like we all have. And you could be seen as a success if you admit that you can't do it and that you need help from someone else who can do it and who did do it, and Jesus did it. You need to accept what Jesus has done on your behalf. And then the mission's done. And we're all done, right? I mean, there, what, what else is there to do? Is, is there anything else that needs to be done at this point? Do you feel like it's done? Well, after Jesus completed his mission... He has a new mission for us. And what is his mission? Well, I just read to you. And it's famously called the Great Commission. So 
I'm going to go through three main points that I got from this passage, okay? So the three points are, if you're a note taker, I made them short. Authority, mission, and promise. Authority, mission, and promise. Okay, you're not going to get a hand cramp on this one, I, I guarantee you. So b- before we dive into those, let's quickly go through the context of the verse that was read to you, Okay. So in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Okay, so, so who is there? The eleven disciples and Jesus. At the very least, eleven disciples and Jesus. And where were they? They were on a mountain in Galilee. And what's the significance of, of Galilee? Is, is there a significance of Galilee? Well, there's this really cool concept in uh, biblical studies. It's, it's called an inclusio. I didn't even know what that was or that it existed. So what an inclusio is, is it's kind of like bracketing. So imagine, and you've seen this in scripture, where you have a word, phrase, or idea in the very beginning of something. Psalms does this a lot, right? And it'll have the same word or phrase at the very end, right? So it's like, it's like a bracket, like it brackets the text, essentially. Um, Another example of this is in stories, when something happens in the beginning, and then it happens again at the end, or a comedian, when they say a joke in the beginning, and then they throw it in at the end, it's it's a callback, right? So an inclusio is kind of like a callback. And what the author is doing, typically, again, in the Psalms, but many of the authors in Scripture, uh, they'll do this, They're either trying to put the emphasis on what's being repeated, or they repeat something to sort of draw you into the text. Does that make sense? Like what that callback does? So here's what we see with Galilee, and I think it's I think it's pretty cool. So in chapter three of Matthew, so the beginning of Matthew, it says Jesus came from Galilee. And now we have here at the very end of Matthew, it says the eleven disciples went to Galilee. So what we have is Matthew, he's concluding his story with where it began. And Galilee is significant for a few reasons. Jesus grew up there. The disciples, few of them grew up there. It's where the calling of the disciples happened. A lot of the disciples were called from Galilee. And now we see the sending out of the disciples is happening in Galilee. Okay? Also, Where to start? Jesus just got crucified in Jerusalem. I would call that a hostile work environment. And so instead of Jesus having them start in Jerusalem, he has them start in Galilee. Remember, Jesus did ministry there. So people are receptive to Jesus, to the work of Jesus. The disciples grew up there. They're familiar with Galilee. That might apply to you in some way. That Jesus wants you to be called to a place that you're familiar with, right? That maybe you grew up in, you know the context, you know the culture. So that would be the significance of Galilee, okay? So that's, that's the context here. The first point that I wanted to talk about is the authority, the authority of Jesus. So in verse 17, we have the following, And when they saw him, 
the disciples, when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So that's not really a good look. And I wonder why Matthew had to include that. They just betrayed and left Jesus, and it could have been like such a positive, happy note that they all worshipped him and lived happily ever after. But we don't get that. We get that some of the disciples doubted here. So we'll focus on them one at a time. Worship and doubt. And that's where we see the authority of Jesus. So they worshipped him. This word worship in the Greek is the full sense of the word. So you know in scripture when angels are worshipped by people, what do the angels do? They say, pump your brakes, stop, that's not for me. That kind of worship is only for God, right? So this worship that the disciples gave to Jesus was only meant for God. And so it shows that the disciples are acknowledging the authority of Jesus as God, that he is God. He deserves that kind of worship as God. Imagine a rookie football player. Someone goes up to them and says, you, sir, you are the greatest of all time. Hopefully rookie isn't going to accept that. Haven't taken a snap yet. Not that good. But if somebody went up to a guy named Tom Brady, and they went up to Tom Brady and they said, you, sir, are the greatest football player of all time. Most people wouldn't correct that statement. He's a pretty good football player. But Jesus here, when he receives this worship from them, he doesn't correct them. And he doesn't rebuke them. And so it shows that he Imagine this, a person is accepting and receiving being called God, and he's not correcting that statement. He's acknowledging that he's God. And I just want you to kind of just visualize this scene, that they worshiped him. What does worship look like? The closest thing that I can think of is at a concert, when you have like one person on stage, and everyone is facing them, and their hands are raised, and they're clapping. Tears might be shed. And they're so excited to see this one person. It looks a lot like worship. And the disciples, they met in Galilee on a mountain. We have a lot of mountains here in Colorado. That's why people move here. So imagine you going on a hike here in Colorado, because they were on a mountain. So the disciples just went on a hike. And then, you know how it feels when you summit a peak? They get to the summit, they see a person, and they worship this person like you would at a concert. That's insane. And that's the kind of praise and worship that they're giving Jesus. And again, he doesn't correct this worship. He accepts it, and he receives it. And then we have the rest of verse 17 that says, but some doubted. So we know early on that some of the disciples doubted Jesus like Thomas, right? They didn't know if Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. And when people saw Jesus, they weren't sure if this was actually the real person of, if it was actually Jesus, essentially. And so some people just doubted 
Jesus's appearance and whether he was actually risen from the dead early on. So that could be the doubt that we see here, except here's what I think. So this word doubt, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. So do you remember when Peter and the disciples were on a boat by themselves and there was a real bad storm? And then Jesus wasn't with them. So to get with them, he starts walking on the water towards them. And Peter sees this and he says, Jesus, let me walk on the water with you if it's actually you. Jesus says, come on out. And then so Peter starts walking on the water. And do you remember what happens? The storm gets so bad that Peter gets afraid. He stops trusting in Jesus and then he begins to sink. Jesus grabs him. And what does Jesus say? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is the only other time this word is used. And so the kind of doubt that Peter seemed to be experiencing here wasn't if Jesus was real. Jesus was right in front of him. He experienced doubt when the storm got so bad that he became so afraid that he stopped trusting in Jesus and he began to sink. And that was the doubt that Jesus is referring to here. So what kind of doubt would the disciples be experiencing? Have you ever let somebody down and then you don't know if they're going to accept you back or not? And so the disciples just left Jesus when he needed them most in the garden. And I think they were really hesitant if Jesus was going to accept them back or not. And Jesus, many times in Scripture, calls out people's thoughts and their emotions, and he calls them on it. He says, I know what you're thinking. I know your real motives. I know your heart. And so let's see how Jesus responds to them in verse 18. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so in the face of worship and doubt, he addresses both groups the same way. He doesn't say, okay, you doubters, I see you. Get out of here. Because what I'm about to say isn't for those who doubt me. It's only for those who worship me. It's only for the faithful. You leave, you stay. And Jesus doesn't do that. He addresses both groups the same way. Both those who worship him and those who doubt him. He embraces both groups, and wouldn't this be encouraging if you were the disciples who doubted him? And so some of you, you might doubt, you might be afraid of your abilities. You might doubt if you can trust in Jesus. But you're not alone in your doubts because the disciples doubted. And I think that Jesus addresses you and them all the same, even with your doubts. Because notice, he doesn't focus on them, he focuses on him. The focus is on Jesus' credentials here, not the disciples' faith or lack thereof. 
And so if you're worried about your abilities, trust in him. Don't trust in yourself. So let's see how much authority Jesus was given here. Verse 18. All authority. So it's not partial, right? And, and what is authority? So it's, it's having power and control. Power and control over something. You in your life, you might have a certain level of authority, right? Maybe in your household with children. You're a manager in an office. Your employees. So as a, as a police officer, I have a certain level of authority, okay? So let's say you're speeding down the highway. I have the limited authority to pull you over, remind you with some paperwork, to slow down, and then I let you go. My authority is to pull you over. I don't get to tell you what to do, how to live your life, what to stream on Netflix, or any of that. I have very limited authority, just as you do. Jesus here, he has all authority. It's not limited. And what's crazy to me is where his authority is. So go back to me being a police officer. I have limited authority and I have limited jurisdiction. So I can enforce laws where I work, which is not in this city, don't worry. <laughs> and so I have limited jurisdiction. I can enforce laws where I work, that county, but I can't go to another country or here, and I don't get to enforce laws outside of my jurisdiction, right? Your jurisdiction under your household. And some of you may feel like you don't even have that. <laughs> Jesus' jurisdiction? Heaven and earth. So Jesus has all authority everywhere. So nobody and no person is exempt from the authority of Jesus. It's everywhere. And I just want to point out here, before we get into his calling to us, that this call that Jesus is about to make with all authority everywhere is to every single Christian out there, that nobody is exempt from what Jesus is about to call us to right here. And this is where we get the mission of Jesus that he sends us on. So in verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So what's the first command here? Go. And what does a green light mean? Coming from a cop, go. And I'll spend as much time here on this part of Jesus' great commission as he does by saying it. So Jesus says go. That's an act. That's an every good mission statement has an action, right? So Jesus is saying go. So we need to go. And what do we go and do? Well, that's where I'm going to spend more time. Make disciples. So this is actually a uh, Greek word. It's very specific, made tua, that means anything to you. What's interesting about this word that Matthew uses, so 
it doesn't mean simply just someone who believes. John MacArthur says this word could actually be translated like a learning believer or a believing learner. And so what he's pointing out here is instead of just saying, make a believer, make someone, call someone to believe in Jesus, because that would be a different word here. And it's not just be a student or someone who studies under you or Jesus, because that would be a different word here. That this is a very specific verb. It means both someone who believes in Jesus and somebody who is in the process, the ongoing process of learning about the person of Jesus. So it's not one or the other. And to me, this beckons the question, does that describe you? Not just somebody who believes, but somebody who's actually in the process of learning, the ongoing lifelong process of learning about God. Because it goes back to what I asked earlier, what is your mission? The things that you do will flow from your mission, right? And so if that's the case, what do you put your time into? Are you a student of the word of God? Are you putting your time into that? Or are you putting your time into learning about other people and what's trending through Instagram or TikTok? Are you learning so much about the Marvel universe and superheroes or learning more about God's universe that he's created and he talks about in his word? And it, it's not a guilt trip. It's just you have to personally assess what you put time into and what's important to you. And know that you don't make And so the people that you're going to make disciples of are going to be non-believers, right? You can't make a believer out of a believer. And so we make disciples of non-believers. And who else do we make disciples of? Jesus says all nations. So, I mean, imagine that scene. There's 11 people. There's more than 11 people here. And Jesus says make disciples of all nations, Sounds kind of like a daunting task to me. And I think what this shows is that Jesus is saying, this isn't just for you guys. This is going to be for all Christians. Because there's no way that just these 11 could fulfill that task. And I want to pause here because I know that many times this then sounds like it's going to become a call to go overseas. You've heard that, right? Go to all nations you need to hop on a plane somewhere, spin a globe, stab your finger. I loved doing that as a kid. Spin a globe, stab a finger. That's where I'm called to go. Or you're waiting for an audible voice to tell you where to go. But you don't need an audible word because we have the written word right here telling us to go. And, and please don't tune me out now. If you're wondering where you're supposed to go, that that's all you're waiting for. So it, there's... It's really cool. There's an app for it. There's an app that tells you where to go. I'm serious. So if you pull out your smartphone and you open up your, your map, your map application, and then when you click on my location, that's where you're called. You're called where you are. 
I want you to think the unreached within your reach. Don't just think about where you have to go from here. Think about where you are right now and all the people who don't believe around you. Think of the unreached within your reach. So you have to ask yourself if you're telling people about Jesus. After we do that, Jesus says, make disciples. And then he says, baptize them. So do you see that order? That first someone believes, and then they get baptized. And just know, baptism is not a requirement for salvation. And how do we know that? The thief on the cross. He didn't have the luxury of time to get into water. And Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. So baptism is not a requirement for salvation. But Jesus does call us to baptize people. And so why get baptized? What is it? Why is it important? That can be determined in and of itself. So I'm just going to kind of get more into a surface level, if you will, about baptism. And so what it essentially is, is it's a ceremony where somebody's immersed into water. That's the physical act of baptism. You want me just to keep? I'm pretty loud. I don't think I need this. Okay. Um, So it's a ceremony when someone gets immersed and... I know it's really foreign to us today. So baptism back then actually was not that foreign of a concept. Um, both Jews and Gentiles, I know we're more familiar with like John the Baptist, but Jews and Gentiles actually got baptized back then. So it wasn't just a religious type of experience. Yeah. So the reason people got baptized back then was still to commit or dedicate themselves to like some sort of change. So people still got baptized, and again, it was, it was to commit themselves to a change, okay? But for the Christian, baptism is a little different because baptism is a physical analogy of a profound spiritual reality. So you know that God typically likes to like teach in like symbols and analogies and things like that. And so what is baptism representing? Well, Being immersed in the water, it's representing the death that you're experiencing when you come to faith in Jesus, death to your old ways. When you believe in Jesus, you're actually uniting himself to what he did, and he died. And so by dying to our old selves, that's the immersion part of baptism, going under the water. And then thankfully, you're you're lifted out of the water, And by being lifted out of the water, what is that representing? New life and resurrection. And that's what we see with baptism. It's a symbol of that. And it's quite profound when you see it that way. And then the other reason to get baptized was the same reason they would back then, which you're publicly declaring and dedicating yourself to something or someone And so it's a public confession and commitment that you're dedicating yourself to Jesus. And Jesus makes clear who else you're dedicating yourself to. 
He says, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So you're baptized to God. And this is one of the most explicit references to the Trinity here. We have all three persons. All three. And what's really interesting about this list is Jesus, he's claiming authority again. Where is he in this list? He's in the middle of the list. He's claiming equality with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's who you are getting baptized to. So we call people to believe in Jesus. We baptize them once they believe. And then what do we do? Jesus says, teach them. So we teach them. And I'm sure you've heard the term perishable skill. The more complex something is, the easier it is you're going to forget it. You got to kind of keep going through some refreshers and whatnot. And so how infinite is God in his word and knowing him? And if you're going to teach someone, you probably have to know the content, right? And so in order to teach people about God, we need to know him. But what is it that we need to know? Jesus says here, not a whole lot, just all that I've commanded you. <laughs> all that I've commanded you. And so initially it's like, okay, so I teach everything Jesus said. Some Bibles make it easier, red letters. So you just, you just learn that and teach people that. And a lot of what Jesus has to say is kind of hard. It's not really the easiest to teach people. The thing is, in uh, John chapter 1, which is our memory verse, John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the Word. And what is all of Scripture referred to as the Word? The Old Testament and the New Testament. And so when Jesus says, I want you to teach people all that I've commanded you, he's saying, I want you to teach people the entire word of God. I want you to teach people the Old Testament and the New Testament, all that I've written about myself, all that I've done for you and everybody. I want you to teach them all of that. That's a lot. And so if you're going to teach people that, you have to know it yourself. It was really interesting. I was talking to this guy. He's about to retire, and he's so excited. And it was awesome because he's like, Man, I want to I wanna maybe go to seminary, and I'm going to like spend all this time in the Word, and I'm just going to tell people. I'm just going to tell people and teach people about God and what he's done. Um, except that that's not what this guy said. He said, I'm going to retire, and I'm going to play golf four to five times a week. I can't wait. And so I was like, that's, that's great. Are you going to do anything else? He's like, no, I'm just going to golf. And... So this guy, his mission is, is to be like Tiger. And um, our life's mission should be to look like Jesus. And so if you're a Christian, Jesus doesn't call us to go retire and uh, just play golf for the rest of our lives. He calls us to tell people about Jesus. And so retirement and age is not an excuse. Being busy with family and children is not an excuse because Jesus doesn't just call us to any of those things. He calls us to this. He calls us to go and make disciples and to learn about God and to tell people about God.
And so this isn't for a few people. This is for everybody. And to summarize, Jesus tells us to go, share the gospel with non-believers, baptize new believers, and teach them the Bible. I'm really just restating what Jesus said here. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. And even after what I just said, my fear is that saying that might discourage some of you or you feel discouraged, and that's really not the intent. And here's why. We are all already a failure. And you're not failing God anymore because you aren't doing these things. Because you're not a success, Jesus was. So whether or not you're doing this, Jesus was your success. You're not loved by God anymore by what you do. You're already good enough through Jesus. You aren't loved because of your disciple making. Jesus already made you a disciple. In light of the life that we have from him, we should go. And just like, I don't want to leave you with the trip, neither does Jesus. We see the final point here. The promise of Jesus. Look how he finishes what he calls the disciples to. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, I remember when I was younger, my dad asked me to help him clean a roof. It was terrifying. And it was probably just a single-story house. But you know, when you're a kid, everything seems like super big. It's well, scary to me. And so he wanted me to get on this roof and to help him clean something. I thought it was a skyscraper. And I didn't want to do it. He said, what are you worried about? I'm like, falling. <laughs> like, what, are you, what am I worried about? And he said, don't worry. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be right behind you. So I got up on the roof, like my dad told me to, and my legs were shaking, and I started cleaning. And just like Peter, I got so scared, and I forgot what my dad said, and then I slipped, I started screaming, and I was falling to my death. And then my dad just, like, he probably just felt like this, but my dad, like, stopped me from falling, and he said, I told you I'm with you. And what we have here is Jesus telling us that he is with us. And when is he with us? Always. So to the Christian, he's telling you, I am with you always. And do you realize that a lot of people don't get to hear that from Jesus, that he's with them? But he can be if they trust in him. Before I close, do you remember what an inclusio is? And I'm not quizzing you, but it's a callback, right? And so what is Jesus referring to when he says, I'm with you? Look at the beginning of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what does Emmanuel mean? And let's compare it to what Jesus says here. Remember, inclusio is, is bracketing, right? Beginning and end. In Matthew chapter 1, we hear that Jesus' name means God with us. And in Matthew chapter 28, this is literally the very end of the book, he says, I am with you. In the beginning and end of Matthew, we have the reminder that Jesus is God with us, that Jesus left heaven. He came to earth to be God with us. So we can be with God because he came to be with us. We can rely on that promise as we go on mission for him. I want to finish by saying that the success of this mission is not dependent on us. So you remember mission impossible. Speaking of a callback. Do you know how you know the mission is possible in those movies? Because there's six of them. And they're making two more. So when Tom Cruise goes through a really suspenseful moment and you're like, I don't know if he's going to make it. I don't know. Just go, well, they got a couple more plans. So I, I, think, I think he's going to be okay. And in the same way, we can be alleviated of the stress of this mission that Jesus calls us on, knowing it'll be a success because Jesus was already a success on our behalf. And I leave you with this final reminder that Jesus left heaven on a mission for us, and now he calls us to be on a mission for him. So in light of Jesus' authority and his mission and his promise, let's go. Pray with me, please. God, thank you for being the success that we need, taking our failure from us, God, and giving us new life. Thank you for coming to be God with us and telling us that you're still there and you're still with us. Help inspire us, Lord, in light of what you've already done, that out of a heart of joy, not obligation, we seek to tell others about what you've done in our lives and actually what you've done for them and what they're saved from and what they can live the rest of their lives in light of and that they can join in on this mission with us. We love you, God. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.